while, because away from the major it's about is the Festus Code that are still hardly being subject to expert It's an uh, ancient Cretan relic on timeline world history documentaries. The mountains along the coast were always a bulwark. In the past, they held back invaders intent on attacking Crete, while today they make it difficult for curious travelers to make any progress. The inhabitants of Crete always formed a close community towards strangers. At the same time, anyone who wants to excavate here could hardly make any progress without local assistance. The Greek professor from Heidelberg has many friends on the island. The knowledge they share with him has been passed down from generation to generation. Countless caves lie hidden in the mountains. In many cases, the entrances are only known to shepherds. The Cretans have always regarded caves as sacred places. Gods were born in them, including the father of all the gods, Zeus. Archaeologists still come across surprising finds at these sacrificial sites. Double-sided cult axes made from bronze or gold and bare-breasted priestesses in clay. Or are these representations of goddesses? They provide fuel for the myth that Crete was a matriarchy, a society governed by women. <laughs> Professor Panagiotopoulos's excavation site is at the edge of the mountains above the Misara plain. Today, many of the locals are leaving the area a large number of villages have been abandoned. However, during the Minoan period, there was a flourishing settlement here on the hilltop. The remains have been excavated and studied. What interests us is the question why a certain region was of great importance at some periods in history, while in other periods it was abandoned. It is not due to the climate, this has hardly changed on Crete over the last 4,000 years. And yet, after the decline of the Minoan culture, Crete never again achieved the importance it had enjoyed during its golden age. Crete is still a puzzle for us archaeologists, even 100 years after the first major discoveries at the beginning of the 20th century. It's pretty amazing that a developed culture arose here, which could justifiably be compared with the great cultures of the Orient. For thousands of years, the fertile soil of the Misara Plain has been a source of prosperity. This was the basis of both the cultural development and political power. Crete is on the crossroads of ancient trading routes. Since the Cretans had a large fleet of ships, trade with people all around the Mediterranean flourished. This was how the first major culture of Europe arose, with its population established early on in centers such as Knossos and Phaistos. And Phaistos is where the greatest puzzle of the Minoan Empire was found. 
Luigi Panier's disc. Italian archaeology on Crete began in a very special historical situation. Greece had achieved independence from Turkey in the middle of the previous century. Then Crete was divided into separate protectorates, Italian, French and British. It was due to this environment that archaeologists from Italy were able to work without any obstacles. These early archaeologists, like Luigi Pernier, had to explore Crete on the back of donkeys. They had to struggle against malaria and other unimaginable difficulties. In the year 1900, when Luigi Pernier lands on Crete, the island is still officially ruled by the Ottoman Turks. At that time, the idea that the first high culture of Europe had once blossomed here appears unbelievable. And yet Pernier discovers evidence of this past everywhere. During the Roman period, the Misara Plain was ruled from Gortin. Here is the Great Code, the oldest legal text in Europe. This was rediscovered by Federico Halper, a leading Italian archaeologist. Originally, Pernier worked for him. This find was to make Halper famous. In Festos, Luigi Pernier is at first only the deputy on excavations led by Halper. Pernier is regarded as extremely ambitious. He is descended from a family of Roman aristocrats with French roots. His opportunity arises when Halper becomes involved in a political intrigue. The affair leaves Pernier the new boss in Festos. He prepared for his mission at the famous Sapienza University in Rome, studying literature and archaeology. Today, the linguist and archaeologist Alessandro Greco teaches here. During the period from 1800 to 1700 BC, Crete was a cultural focal point. This was known as the New Palace period, when the major structures were built whose ruins can still be seen today. It was in these palaces that archaeologists found clay tablets with what became known as Linear A script. And despite decades of research, to this day, it has not been possible to decipher this written language. Alessandro Greco is therefore obliged to try a different route. He is analyzing all visual information that has been found so far in order to gain knowledge about the religion, social structure, and everyday life of the Minoans. His main problem here is that virtually all authentic images are only available in miniature format. We don't know who's depicted here. Is it a king or queen, a prince or a god? And we don't know how their minds worked. Even the visual language of the rings is still puzzling. The function is known. They were used documents and letters. At Heidelberg University, Professor Diamantis Panagiotopoulos is evaluating his series of excavations. He occupies the famous chair 
of classical archaeology here. The practical work of an archaeologist includes analyzing and archiving the finds. In Heidelberg, a scientific mega-project is being performed, involving 130 experts from 13 countries. This is the famous Corpus of Minoan and Mycenaean Seals, a gigantic collection of data, including hundreds of thousands of photographic negatives and 9,000 prints from clay seals. It's a collection of the most varied materials, forms, and above all patterns of the images on clay seals which provides us with a wealth of extremely During the period from 1800 to 1700 BC, Crete was a cultural focal point. This was known as the New Palace Period, when the major structures were built whose ruins can still be seen today. It was in these palaces that archaeologists found clay tablets with what became known as Linear A script. And despite decades of research, to this day, it has not been possible to decipher this written language. Alessandro Grekel is therefore obliged to try a different route. He is analyzing all visual information that has been found so far in order to gain knowledge about the religion, social structure, and everyday life of the Minoans. His main problem here is that virtually all authentic images are only available in miniature format. We don't know who's depicted here. Is it a king or queen? a prince or a god, and we don't know how their minds worked. Even the visual language of the rings is still puzzling. The function is known. They were used by rulers to place their seals on documents and letters. At Heidelberg University, Professor Diamantis Panagiotopoulos is evaluating his series of excavations. He occupies the famous chair of classical archaeology here. The practical work of an archaeologist includes analyzing and archiving the finds. In Heidelberg, a scientific mega-project is being performed, involving 130 experts from 13 countries. This is the famous Corpus of Minoan and Mycenaean Seals, a gigantic collection of data, including hundreds of thousands of photographic negatives and 9,000 prints from clay seals. It's a collection of the most varied materials, forms, and above all patterns of the images on clay seals, which provides us with a wealth of extremely important information about their social structures, ideologies, and mentalities of these societies.
Natürlich gibt es auch Of course, there are a number of signet rings which cannot be guaranteed in terms of authenticity. We compare these problematic examples with seals from systematic archaeological excavations, objects which have been proven to be authentic. The work of these experts often resembles the proverbial search for a needle in a haystack. The collection also contains a ring with an inscription that has not been deciphered. The spiral shape and script form resembles that of the Phaestus disc. Does this ring indicate that Vernier's mysterious clay disc is genuine? Hey guys, thank you so much for coming out to the Hey guys, a thank lot. you so much. It's just a good time, right? So many awesome tips. Would you be interested in collecting five figure paychecks for a few hours of work, helping me in your spare time from home? I'm One of the problematic examples is the Ring of Minus, which has been suspected for many years of being a forgery. Arthur Evans bought the gold ring from a priest, although many experts warned him against doing so. Today, the Ring of Minos is in Heraklion Museum. If it really is a modern forgery, who might the forger have been? In this case, too, the name of Girion is on the list of main suspects. Were the Girions engaged in forgery for decades? Final proof is contained in the Heraklion Museum, but it cannot be accessed. The British archaeologist and linguist Gareth Owens has made Crete his second home. The focus of his research is on early scripts from the Minoan period, like the disc. The Phaistos Palace complex exerts an almost magic attraction over him. The Minoan civilization of the second millennium BC is based around the palatial economy and the palaces like we are here in Festos is the center of bureaucracy and religion. Gareth Owens knows every inch of the ruined palace. For decades, he has studied each detail here such as the so-called Queen's Throne Room. Pitoi like this were used to store the commercial wealth of the Cretans. To this day, traditional urns are produced from clay, as they have been for thousands of years. The craftsmen in the ancient palace workshops became masters of this art. Their reputation even reached as far as the court of the Egyptian pharaohs, awarded clay vases and silver bowls from Crete. The Minoan palaces and the economy of Crete is based very much on agricultural products, very excellent olive oil and wine, still very good today indeed. They were keeping it here in the storerooms. They were exporting throughout the Mediterranean very widely indeed, traveling throughout the Mediterranean Sea very, very international. The first palace was very rich, destroyed about 1700 BC, which is probably the date of the Festos disc. And it's no surprise that writing is developed in this southern part of Crete. 
This first palace at Phaistos was constructed in 1900 BC. <laughs> 200 years later, a huge earthquake caused it to collapse. The doors and ceilings were made of wood, and they were set on fire by the flames from the oil lamps. It must have been an inferno. Although the building has been constructed in a special way, it could not withstand the massive earthquake. The fire spread at incredible speed. The inhabitants fled in panic. But nevertheless, many did not survive. The entire palace complex was ruined. Hephaestus did be part of that destruction, however. Importantly, deliberately baked, not accidentally baked, like the destruction level that saved the other linear tablets. It was actually found with a linear tablet and with really nice Kamari-style pottery. And this part of the palace seems to be for storing valuable objects. It was found lying together with numerous other artifacts, indicated to Pernier that the disc had fallen from one of the upper stories. But attempting to reconstruct the catastrophe scenario raises new problems. How could a fragile clay disc survive a fall of several meters and crash down onto a hard stone floor without any apparent damage? A crucial question that neither Luigi Pernier nor his successor in Faistus were ever able to answer satisfactorily. In New York, Jerome Eisenberg deals in ancient artifacts. This internationally renowned specialist has spent decades studying items to establish whether they are genuine or forgeries. It's been fired very thoroughly, very evenly. And the only time ancient tablets were fired was during a fire and they'd be unevenly uh, fired. And the edges are very, very uh, sharp and you wouldn't have any ancient tablet, anything made out of clay with sharp edges that could easily be damaged. It had too many things wrong with it. If you have two or three things that don't make sense, I can accept it. But when you have eight or nine different things that are wrong with the piece, then I certainly would condemn it as a forgery. If Heisenberg's suspicions are correct, it would mean that Luigi Pernier falsified the exploration record. However, it is also conceivable that he himself was tricked. To this day, it has not been established exactly who was present at the excavation when the object was found. Alessandro Greco thinks it inconceivable that Pernier himself faked the object. It was an incredible achievement of Luigi Pernier's to excavate and even evaluate the entire palace within the space of just a few years. In addition to his excavation activities, Luigi Pernier was also employed in Florence as an antiques inspector. His jurisdiction included the city's archaeological museum. Finds from the Etruscan period have pride of place in the collection here. The Etruscans were among the most powerful people around the Mediterranean. Paolo Rendini is a specialist in Etruscan script. In the magazine, Dr. Rendini and the museum director 
study one of the most valuable items, the Magliano disc. It represents one of the most important examples of Etruscan script. Today, the 70 words can be read, while in the days of Luigi Pernier, this was not possible. At eight centimeters in diameter, it is half the size of the Phaistos disc. The words and sentence sections are separated by dots, while on the Phaistos disc, vertical lines are used. It was found at the end of the 19th century in 1882. The Archaeological Museum in Florence bought it in 1888. It's an extraordinary object because the disc is made of lead. It measures 8 by 7 centimeters. This isn't very large, but it contains one of the oldest examples of Etruscan writing known to us. Near the location where this was found, an Etruscan cemetery was discovered with even older graves from the late 7th and early 6th century BC. This cult object originated a thousand years after the Paris fire in Phaistos. Cultural exchange between Etruscans and Minoans would appear extremely unlikely. Consequently, the great similarity between the two discs is inexplicable. However, while he was working in Florence, Luigi Pernier could have studied the Magliano disc extensively before he discovered the Phaestus disc in Crete. As far as Jerome Eisenberg is concerned, this is a crucial clue. It has many unique characteristics. It has nothing to do with any other work of ancient art. Uh, physically, it's the only large disc that's found in the Near East or in the Mediterranean area. Nobody can decide what it is and where it came from. One of Pernier's successors at the Italian excavation site in Festos also finds the disc extremely puzzling. The disc is a unique object with a unique inscription for Crete and the entire eastern Mediterranean. It's a script that features open syllables. It probably originated in Crete, because all other Cretan scripts, such as linear A and B, are also the open syllable type. In the Heraklion Museum, the disc is the main attraction. It is 3,600 years old, according to the museum. The inscription is said to be a prayer, a record of battles or an archive register. What is known for certain is that the disc has a diameter of 16 centimeters and is stamped with 45 different symbols arranged in a spiral from the outer rim to the center. These 700 people didn't have to die. If they had just had an emergency sleeping bag like this right here, they could have easily survived. To the center, forming a total of 242 stamped impressions. Too many signs for an alphabet, too few signs for a system like Chinese or Egyptian. So what we decided to do was to try to progress with systematic epigraphic work. So if a sign is the same in different scripts, it has the same sound value. 
those 45 signs, the sound values, can be found amongst the 90 sound values of linear B, which is a script of roughly the same time, from the same place, which has been deciphered. While the linguistics expert believes there may soon be a breakthrough, Jerome Eisenberg sees examples of suspicious errors. This inscription basically goes from right to left, as in Egyptian hieroglyphs. On the other hand, Minoan script of linear A and linear B are read from left to right. These are all too highly realistic to be in an ancient script. This is an interesting symbol. This is a uh, gloved hand, or a castus in Latin, which only occurs in the Roman period, which is about 1,500 years later. They just don't make sense together. If Jerome Eisenberg is right, how could the forger have achieved this? It must have been somebody familiar with classical script types. Obtaining the raw material for the clay disc wouldn't have been a problem. There are potters close to Phaestus. If the price were high enough, they would have remained silent. Luigi Pernier had access to the excavation records and might have desired the fame for himself and for Italy. Whether he had the necessary handicraft skills to produce the forgery himself is doubtful. While the spiral pattern almost looks as though it was produced by a child, the symbols were printed with seals molded in a sophisticated process. Jerome Eisenberg believes Pernier commissioned the work at most. It was said that uh, Guilleron was present at the time that this was discovered and that Pernier was not, that he was probably taking a nap. The exact circumstances when the Phaestus disc was found can't be established definitively. No archaeologist was a direct witness. It may be significant that these Girons are once again directly implied in archaeological forgery. Did their greed overpower their moral scruples? Evidence of the Giron salesmanship can be found in the Humboldt University in Berlin. The archaeologist Nadine Becker is researching the purchase of artifacts by the university during the pre-war period. The Winkelmann Institute is proud of its lavishly made copies from the Giron workshops. They are objects of study for experts and students. All in original sizes, like the throne of King Minos. These exclusive replicas came at a price. Catalogues, purchase orders, and correspondence with the Girons have been preserved to this day in the archives. Original invoices and customs documentation indicate the astonishing sums the Girons demanded, which were paid by the buyers. Using a process which was technically revolutionary at the time, the metal copies were produced by a Galvano plastic method in the Württemberg metalware factory, WMF. The Girions sold the exclusive items to their international customers for outrageous prices. But 
Pajir rules did not only place replicas on the market. Experts at the renowned museums of Boston and Toronto have also found indications of criminal activities. The museum purchased her in 1931. Mm -hmm. Sir Arthur Evans called her Our Lady of the Fort. You know, another interesting thing here is the fact that she's wearing this gold cog piece. Now, that cog piece, in fact, is a penis sheath. Oh, not quite appropriate. Not entirely appropriate. And it's also interesting that the majority of the ivories that turned up early in the 20th century AD are female figures. And this is because Sir Arthur Evans was very much uh, looking for representations of a prominent female deity, his mother goddess, and that's probably why he called her Our Lady of Sport, because it's a direct reference to the Virgin Mary. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Here too, an ivory figure from the Minoan period was part of the collection, until recently. It has now been banished to the archives. Quite a come down with the snake goddess. So what made you suspicious? Especially strange is the damage to her face. The upper left side, you can see, has kind of sheared away and ivory flakes. This is what ivory does. But the features that survive there are centered on what survives. But if that damage took place after the carving rather than before the carving, what survives should be asymmetrical or damaged. The scientific analyses are quite interesting, and I was really surprised when they came back. If the statuette is ancient, the ivory should date to about 1450 BC. When the results came back, they were really surprising because they did come back at 1450, but AD, not BC. So the ivory that was tested, if not a corrupt sample, is far too recent to be ancient Minoan ivory. So who do you think made her? Well, it would have to be someone who is very familiar with the archaeological material. I believe that the father-son team, the Giro, who worked for Evans and had a very profitable business in making replicas, were well positioned to create forgeries like this. Jerome Eisenberg feels this investigation confirms his views. I attended an exhibition of ancient art in Boston, in Cambridge, and I was shocked at how many pieces, in my opinion, were forgeries. Between 1958 and 1965, I bought some 40,000 pieces, and of, of those, some 22,000 came out of Egypt, and I became rather expert on detecting the forgeries. Are visitors to the museum in Heraklion admiring a sophisticated forgery, as Jerome Heisenberg claims? However, recent archaeological discoveries could indicate that the disc is genuine. A bronze axe is also kept in Heraklion. On the head of the double axe, there are three lines with overlapping signs engraved upon them. Linguistic experts like Gareth Owens 
See a parallel here with the stamped symbols on the disc. Gareth Owens and his colleagues have withdrawn to within sight of ancient Phaestus in order to resolve the last mystery of the oldest script in Europe. Now he believes he has finally achieved the breakthrough. He considers that the text on the disc can be deciphered and read. What we have here is definitely a Minoan prayer because we found these words elsewhere on Minoan Crete as well. We have a Minoan prayer for a goddess. My suspicion is that it could be the Minoan Astarte. And Ique Kuria, which is the key word on the Festus disc, could well mean pregnant goddess. Ique is known from Linear B to be the word for goddess. And Kuria, Kuria could be the word for pregnant. This wouldn't be surprising when we think that the words on the Festus disc were also found on the top of mountains where Minoan people were making dedications, tamata, to the goddess on the top of the mountains. Another attribute of Astarte, she is the queen of the mountains. Mount Euctus towers over Knossos. The mountain is a magical place. It is said that the father of the gods, Zeus, is buried here. For thousands of years, people have been attracted to the mountain peak, which, from a distance, resembles a sleeping man. So now we're searching for the magic frequencies. Do we start with 100 hertz? Do we look through the microscope to see if anything's happening? We watch for five minutes. Nothing happens. We try hundreds and hundreds of frequencies, if not thousands, until we find the magic combination. Because we believe there just had to be a better way. There had to be a better way. Gareth Owens also returns to this place repeatedly. On one side of the mountain, an orthodox chapel with three naves was constructed. Archaeologists then discovered that a sacred edifice with three naves stood on the same site during the Minoan period, almost 4,000 years ago. to look at the offerings and think that what the Greek Orthodox people are doing today is similar to what the Minoans were doing 36 centuries ago. People don't change. They worry about the same thing. There's continuity. People are worried about their health and they're asking a higher power for help. And some of the words that have been found on the Minoan inscription on the same holy mountain and a very small libation offering that they were doing then, and they were dedicating the parts of the body at that time made from clay, not just from silver, have been also been found on the B-side of the Festos disc. Not long ago, an apparently insignificant sacrificial bowl was discovered. Linguistic symbols that had not been encountered previously are engraved on it. They are almost identical to those on the disc. A forger a hundred years ago could not possibly have known these signs. Does this mean the disc is now accepted as genuine? The Festos disc is um, a problem. 
the clay is not the same clay as found on Crete. We don't know where the clay came from because we don't have analysis of it. And the museum will not allow us to take any tests on the uh, disc or even to handle it. Berlin, the Egyptian museum. Rumors have begun to circulate that the bust of the beautiful Nefertiti is a forgery. A scientific investigation will provide a definitive answer. Despite the high risk of moving the precious object, with great care and with extensive security measures in place, the highlight of the museum is taken to the Charité Hospital in Berlin. Here, the bust of the woman, reputed to be the most beautiful of all, is subjected to computer tomography. The proof that is so important for the museum island of Berlin is now forthcoming. The world-famous bust is not a fake from modern times. The risk and the expense have been worthwhile. The museum Halle is also posed with a problem. The museum houses what it believes is a sensational object, the Nebra Sky Disc, a bronze disc adorned with representations of the heavenly bodies in gold. This incredible find was brought to light by grave robbers. Now, there are claims that the disc could be a forgery. An analysis using scientific techniques will resolve the matter. The extensive technical study is performed in the Bessie Particle Accelerator in Berlin. By employing high-intensity X-rays, the composition of the gold plating can be determined without damaging it. In this way, conclusive proof is obtained. The sky disk is the oldest known calendar of mankind. What about the disk, which is the main attraction in Heraklion? On the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the disc, 1908 to 2008, I wrote again to the director of the museum, and he said that, that since it's a national treasure, it can't be touched or moved. And if that would turn out to be a forgery, it would be a disaster for, oh, for tourism even. Year after year, millions of tourists come to the island of Crete. Tourism is the most important commercial activity, securing half the entire income of the island. Knossos, Festos, and the museum in Heraklion are huge public attractions, important features of this mega business. Critical questions? They're not welcome. Thus it is that an air of suspicion continues to hang over the collection of the National Museum. Is the beautiful world...
in ketosis, which continues to burn fat all day long, which can then lead to weight loss in problem areas that seem impossible, like the belly, arms, or hips. Now, before I go on, I just want to tell you that there are two main types of keto, one for men and one for women. And guess which one is used in 99% of keto programs? Well, the one for women is different since it requires us to eat delicious carbs, including dessert. Surprised? Desserts are essential for women doing keto, and it's all to do with hormones. You see, so many women try keto, and they cut carbs down to absolutely zero. And that's a big mistake, because it can send the body into survival mode, where it stores fat instead of burning it. This shifts the body out of ketosis and sabotages any efforts at fat loss. So one of the keys to burning fat is reducing hunger hormones and reducing cravings. That's where dessert and the right amount of carbs comes into play. Women on keto need to eat some desserts to satisfy their sweet tooth, and everyone's body needs a certain amount of carbs to function properly. However, you have to eat the type of carbs that's best for your body's genetics, shape, age, and even how fast you want to reach your goal weight. Because the truth is, everyone has their own unique body type, which is... National Museum. Is the beautiful world of the Minoans depicted here a mere invention? Thought out by Arthur Evans and Luigi Pernier, put into practice by the Girons. At one point, the Girons created the saffron gatherer fresco from a few fragments. Further finds prove, however, that the figure depicted here was in fact a monkey. Jerome Eisenberg has no doubt at all about it. The Phaistos disc is a fake. Luigi Pernier is a con man. He was in need of funds for excavation. Also, he wanted the glory of having discovered a famous piece. So it was for, it was for glory and for cash. Arthur Evans also complained that he always needed funds and that his discoveries in Knossos aided him to have rich people contribute money. Arthur Evans was able to make his dream come true. For four decades, his very personal vision of the palace of King Minos grew on Crete. He was working also for the fame of the British Empire. By the end of his life, he was able to call himself Sir Arthur Evans. Even if critics dismiss Knossos as Disneyland, each year, millions of visitors stroll around the structures made of plaster and concrete. Today, however, some archaeologists advocate to dismantle Evans Knossos. Today, the Palace of Knossos is the way it is, and that's the way people imagined the Minoan world in the year 1900. The reputation of the Gilerons deserves to be restored, because our way of judging the history of art from a modern perspective, as if in a courtroom, and condemning it, is unfair. When it comes to any sort of scientific work, you always have to take into account the time of its creation. The fact that the finds of Heinrich Schliemann and Arthur Evans met with such resonance is partly due to the work of the Girons. They too have had a crucial influence on our image of Europe's first high culture. The idea that King Minos's Crete was a paradise on earth and his subjects were peaceful half-lovers. Like his father, Emile Giron Jr was never accused of any art forgery. He started a business in Athens. This family company 
produced successful copies of antique objects right up to modern times. In Festos, Gareth Owens has almost achieved his goal after decades of working on the mysterious disc. As far as he is concerned, the disc is one of the most important examples of the ancient scripts. We like to think that we are offering a reading that is more secure than has been offered in the past, and we hope people will take advantage of that to move on to the next stage, which is trying to understand. Jerome Eisenberg refuses to be distracted by Gareth Owen's success. I still believe that it's 100% a forgery. No question in my mind. The suspicions attached over the decades about the authenticity of his disc didn't appear to damage Panier's career as an archaeologist. For 30 years, he performed research in Phaestus, ignoring all the doubts and all the doubters. Are you prepared for the tough times ahead, or are you going to end up in a line waiting for government handouts? Because not being able to predict the future, well, that's excusable. But being fragile to the future, it's not. And I'm about to show right, you exactly so... how fragile or resilient you are to future disasters. Hey, I'm... So... One of those things, absolutely, but... Whatever. Ah, ah, ah. They didn't answer our own question. As usual. Let's see. Reply them. So often the word bruh. Wham, I bloated something. What about my subscriptions? Library, where's my... Scientists reveal Antarctica. Not what we're being told. Huh. Trump caught wearing diaper. Pretty safe to say, and this is fantastic info for all of us watching, which is that old Donnie is living through his absolute nightmare right now. If you had to craft a scenario with which to bother this guy, with which to torment him and all of that, this would be the moment. Because it's a combination of some of his greatest fears, which is abandonment, which is people leaving him. He doesn't deserve to keep people around him. He doesn't do anything to deserve it. But he still hates being abandoned, as well as losing relevancy and being mocked. And when you combine all of that together, it is a cocktail Diaper that sinks Don. old Donnie. Because again, he gets mocked sometimes, but he used to be relevant. Or, you know, he was being attacked, but people took him seriously. Or what have you, people stayed loyal to him, because even though he didn't deserve it, he had money and he had power and connections and all of that. 
Now all of that's gone to the wayside. So I have three things for you. First, you have Donald Trump absolutely raging, guys. Raging like a firestorm over the fact that he continues to lose ground to Ron DeSantis, showing that he's losing his own political party. Then, get into the fact that his people continue, guys. It's It's been like 24 plus hours, but they continue to tear into Donald Trump, specifically for his NFT thing, and how he's losing fundraising over that move and over other recent moves, before getting into maybe the greatest humiliation for Trump. Because this dude loves a good dinner, he loves a good party, he loves anything fancy and exclusive. And at an exclusive fancy dinner party, he was just brutally mocked to his core, and you know it's going to break him. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is lashing out at new polls showing Ron DeSantis with an early lead in the 2024 Republican primary. I know, even with that airport, Miami. He's just crushing Just to recap, the latest Wall Street Journal poll shows DeSantis with a 14-point lead. The USA Today Suffolk University poll has DeSantis with a 23-point lead. And he's not even running. I know. Ron is just, he's just sitting in his home in Tallahassee, hanging out. How to own the limbs, and he's like plus 23 over Donald Trump. Trump posted on his social media page that he has to quote put up with the same old stuff, claiming the Wall Street Journal has what, quote prosecutors lost no. an incalculable amount of influence, and that Fox News, which has not released new polling, has been quote seriously wrong from the day I came down the escalator. Yeah, not really. There is some mud Yeah, let's bring in some mad. Let's bring in national politics reporter for NBC News, Jonathan Allen. It's like here, if Republicans are given a choice. It looks like, for the moment, and increasingly, they like Ron DeSantis more than they do Donald Trump. So, what does that all mean? I mean, obviously, we are a ways out here before the presidential campaign gets going in earnest. Donald Trump says he's running, but as Jonathan Lemire has been reminding us, he's done absolutely nothing that a presidential candidate would do. No events, no speeches, no rallies, none of that. So what are we looking at around the corner here? Is Ron DeSantis taking a serious look at 2024? Yeah, absolutely, Willie. But let me just first say that if you act now, you can get a digital my pillow along with that NFT from Donald Ooh. Trump. So you know, Ooh. just in, in case folks are uh, looking for a little extra bonus. <laughs> 99 bucks, yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, Ron DeSantis is absolutely thinking about running his phone. Right now, they don't want to get baited into a fight with Donald Trump uh, way too early, uh, to borrow a phrase from Jonathan Lemire. And uh, they're going to wait for for quite a while. They're going to go through the legislative session in Florida, you know, ends basically next spring, early summer. Uh, and they're looking at Donald Trump and what he says about them as as an effort to get them into a fight that they don't want to have right now as DeSantis' numbers are going up and Trump's are cratering. Uh, the other thing is Trump seems a little bit afraid of DeSantis. If you look at his statement, he talks about the quote-unquote same old stuff from the Wall Street Journal and the Fox News. He's attacking the polling. He's attacking the news organizations. What he's not doing is attacking Ron DeSantis. 
John Allen, is um, it, is this a one-on-one -on -one contest at this point, Trump versus DeSantis, or are there other Republicans who, if even if they're not figuring in the polls yet, are, are do you think are going to try to contest if, if Trump looks beatable? Yeah, Trump looks beatable, and he does right now. Uh, certainly looks vulnerable. There will be other Republicans. To get in the race. Uh, the best opportunity for non-Trump Republicans is to have one candidate, say Ron DeSantis, but uh, for each individual candidate, they've got their own interests to pursue. So uh, former Vice President Mike Pence looks like somebody who's likely to get in. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. In fact, one of the polls that we've seen in the last week tested, I think, 15 different candidates. That was Politico uh, Morning Consult poll. And what they found is, uh, you know, 45 to 30 uh, for Trump over DeSantis with 7% for Mike Pence. So the polls are, are a little bit all over the place. We are two years out. But if you're Donald Trump, you're a former president of the United States, you've dominated your party for five or six years, and you wake up in the morning, you look at polls that say that the governor of your own state, Ron DeSantis, is beating you without even trying. you got to be really worried. And that's not cherry-picking reactions. Major conservative media outlets had a field day today roasting the former president, the guy they used to write fluff pieces about. The New York Post called Trump's NFTs, quote, fingy. The Washington Examiner did a roundup of Trump being, quote, mercilessly mocked for the whole thing. And a writer at the conservative blog Red State said, I voted for Trump twice, so I have zero animosity toward anyone who remains a fan. But man, this kind of stuff is making it really difficult to not just throw my hands up. Of course, it's not just these NFTs that have conservatives hiding their MAGA hats on a high shelf in the closet. As the editor-in-chief of the conservative magazine, The National Review, Rich Lowry, wrote yesterday, it's hard to imagine how Trump could have had a worse month-long run. Ordinarily, one might say as a way of exaggerating to emphasize the point that it could only have been worse if he had had dinner with a Nazi. But of course, he did that, too. Oof. And it's not just conservative media that seems to be abandoning Trump. It looks like his donors are, too. In a key fundraising window right after Trump announced his new bid for the presidency, Trump raised a grand total of $4.2 million, $4 million over two weeks. Now, $4 million is a lot for an individual, but for a presidential campaign these days, it is nothing. Compare it to the $130 million Trump raised in the two weeks following the 2020 election. If that all of that was not enough cold water. The latest polling should be. In July, 60% of Republicans wanted Trump to run again. Now, only 47% do. And 45% do not want him to. And that's just polling Republicans. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal released the results of a hypothetical matchup between Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for the Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis beat Trump 52 to 38% a 14-point margin. Now, historically, Republican primary polling has not mattered this far out. At this point in the 2000 election cycle, Elizabeth Dole and Dan Quayle were seen as the frontrunners for the Republican ticket. In 2008, Rudy Giuliani seemed like a shoe-in. And at this point in 2016, Trump wasn't even seen as a contender. But this time really does feel different. Trump is an incredibly known entity and it doesn't seem like Republicans like what they know about him. 
talk about how the two of you navigated working with former President Trump. Because he famously nicknamed the two of you Chuck and Nancy, right? It was always Chuck and Nancy. I think you both knew that Speaker Pelosi got under his skin, right? Yes. Was there a strategy when you went into a meeting? Was there a good cop, bad cop? He's just inaugurated. This is an historic moment. The President of the United States. So I'm thinking, how is he going to begin? Is he going to quote the Constitution, American history, poet, the Bible? You know I won the popular vote. So he started. Then I said, Mr. President, that's just not true. We sort of set him up instinctively. We didn't plan this. Everyone thought we planned it out. It was about the government shutdown the first time. And Nancy said something to him about he didn't understand, about women. Chuck was masterful. Well, he was masterful. She set him up so I could go in for the kill. No, but he was masterful. He's talking to him about the government shutdown and about um, immigrants and the rest. And he said, were you recently injured in a car accident? Look at this check for $160,000. If you're looking to get money you are owed for an injury, I want you to imagine you and your family getting that money because I know a way that you can. Now, before you think... He says, I take ownership of yeah, the I shutdown. Said, so, Mr. President, you'll own, will you own the shutdown? Yes, I will. And that was... Oh, thank you very much. There are a series of moments that you saw firsthand. There's the clap, there's tearing up the speech, and then there is the famous picture. It's the meeting in the cabinet room where you stood up and, uh, and confronted. Looking back at those moments, what was going through your mind? He said he doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's up against. I tell people, Nancy instinctively knew how to handle Trump because for her first, you know, 35, 40 years of life, she raised five children and she knew how to deal with children. And that's what helped her deal with Trump because he ultimately was a child. We had a different approach. Chuck was a New Yorker. Brooklyn. Brooklyn. So they spoke their own kind of they understood each other. Uh, you're stepping aside. Do you think President Biden should step aside for a younger generation? I think President Biden has done an excellent job as President of the United States. I hope that he does seek re-election. He's been a great and president. Look at what he's accomplished. You a think lot he of people. Run again? Yeah, he's done an excellent, excellent job. And he runs, I'm going to support him all the way. Right now, Donald Trump is the only Republican who has announced he could be the nominee. He could be president again. You've been through the first presidency. You've been through January 6th. What would it mean if Donald Trump was reelected president? I don't think it'll happen. The American people have gotten wise to it. Took a little while, but they did. I don't think that we should talk about him while we're eating. <laughs> See? <laughs> really? Another Trump presidency? 
you called Donald Trump, quote, insane. I think there's a need for an intervention there by his family or somebody. No, I don't think it's on the level, no. So you can, you can hear it there, right? Like all three of those clips really demonstrate it. The first one really shows that Trump is flipping out. And it's not like he's saying to himself, okay, I'm losing or I might be losing to this 